If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment. I'm Pete Wargent. I'm here with Chris Bates. Hi, Chris. How's things? Pete, life's good, mate. Good to catch up with you at the uh, Sydney event. And um, you jumped straight in a plane and you got to Cairns for a week of holidays. So uh, tough life you're living there. <laughs> yeah, traveling around a bit at the moment. Um, yes, we did the Rask Roadshow down in Sydney this week. We had a really good turnout. Um, and you can actually watch that back. They recorded that as a live stream, so you can check it out on YouTube if you didn't join us live. And um, yeah, really good events and excellent presenters this year as well. And we did a nice little property panel there towards the end with Amy Lunardi, um, our co-host on the Australian Property Podcast. So it was all, all in all pretty good, I think. Yeah, it was absolutely. It was, uh, it was Glenn James there. Owen did a segment, um, Future Generations around. Um, I think that was, I hadn't actually heard of them before, actually. So that was a... Really interesting segment around, um, yeah, I guess, investing via uh, an investment trust like your unit trust, I guess, that with no fees really and you just basically donate 1% to charity. So that was really, really a clever model. So what are we going to talk about this week, Pete? We're on the mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. Um, we're about six months into that journey now, which is crazy and um, hopefully we're, we're making um, good ground. What are we going to talk about this week, Pete? Yeah, so I guess um, yeah, we've been juggling a few different things because we keep missing out on properties every time we go to buy, especially in Brisbane. We uh, we had one in Mount Gravatt this week and there was 17 offers and we've missed out on a couple of auctions. So yeah, we're just trying to uh, juggle um, actually getting properties bought with delivering some high quality podcast content. So uh, yeah. that's been a challenge. But uh, yeah, so three stories this week. Chinese set to pounce on Australian property. There's a few different um articles the australian we had macro business and also um the uh, research or property group jawai also uh, talking about that so um with the foreign investment review board figures confirming an increase in chinese investment uh, secondly oz property prices returned to record highs as another piece in the australian prop track have reported a total recovery at least at the national level in aussie property prices and then thirdly, um, a couple of pieces in the Fin Review talking about 
farmland returns at an eight year low due to weather cycles and El Nino. So I think just a broader chat about what's happening in the commercial property space, not just farmland. There's been some interesting challenges in the office world as well. Um, so those are our three sort of themes for this week, Chris. So let's start with the first one, Chinese buyers returning to Australian property. So July says inquiries are up 76% year on year in Q2 after three years essentially of lockdowns. Also the Foreign Investment Review Board, which are more official figures, uh, saw a 40% increase in approvals for Chinese buyers in the 2023 financial year. I think we were just chatting before we kicked off, Chris. Um, I think the Foreign Investment Review Board figures are usually where foreign buyers are buying new property and they're seeking approval um, to buy those. But um, I think often uh, the bigger issue, what people are often more concerned about is the pathways for uh, foreign money to find its way into established property. Uh, And the pathways have really been shut off for a few years. We didn't have the international students here. Uh, We weren't getting Chinese tourism in particular, and in fact, tourism from anywhere. And now those pathways are starting to open up again. And there's a few people speculating uh, that with the borders now reopen and there's a bit of a lag effect, all that money that wasn't invested, we're now seeing a bit of a catch up. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers in here, they're very, and they sound big numbers, you know, billions of dollars. But I mean, you've got to remember the Australian property market's worth um, about $10 trillion, right? And so um, each, each year, um, there's probably around $300 billion of lending that sort of happens, you know, whether that's refinances or or purchases, maybe it's about 120 or to 50, you know, 150 billion dollars of purchases each year. So, you know, if we're talking you know, a few trillion dollars, a few billion dollars here, it's not going to move the needle. But ultimately, it can move the needle in certain pockets, in certain suburbs, where you know there's a perception that money's coming in. There's a you know new source of money coming, and that just creates a bit of competition, and then that can spread. So it can have a contagion effect. It might not have a individual effect on a uh, at a transaction level, that much, but it's just a confidence boost to certain pockets that can spread. And uh, you know, I don't think these are anywhere near the numbers like it was in you know 2014, 15, 16. Um, and but you know, I think that the capital flows out of China, um, you know, starting to begin, I guess. Um, and I think that's just you know more positive for some pockets of the market. That's exactly. It. I think the uh, the concern in real estate is that the marginal buyer can make a difference. So if you go to an auction, and, and look, I remember this from a decade ago, you turn up to an auction and there'd be um, plenty of buyers there, some of which uh, wouldn't be, or some of whom wouldn't be speaking English, and there'd be sort of uh, people sort of looking uh, with accusatory glances and that kind of thing. But if somebody bids an extra fifty or a hundred thousand dollars on top of the end of an auction, the the marginal buyer does make a difference in that sense. Now, uh, the catalyst for Chinese demand returning was China's decision to reopen its borders, which only took effect in January. It's gone for a long time, and of course, the Chinese government and subsequently issued an edict that said foreign enrolled students had to get back onto campus for face-to-face teaching. Um, So now we've got uh, record numbers of international students. I think, um, yes, you mentioned capital flight. I think for some uh, Chinese buyers in particular, it's definitely an aspirational thing, wanting to own home or property or real estate in Australia. Now, Jawai have said this time around, they're saying there's much more uh, demand for families buying dwellings to live in. I think um, if you went back to pre-COVID, uh, there's a lot of the foreign buyers who are buying inner city apartments, but they're saying this time around people are buying townhouses, houses and large apartments from the 1.5 million, 2 million, 2.5 million and up kind of price range. So 
Yes, you're right, Chris. I think if you went back to the previous cycle, it was lots of off-the-plan units and apartments. But this time around, a lot of the foreign buyers have really been put off because there's a stamp duty surcharge to buy new property. And it's not really that appealing to pay 9% or 10% transaction costs. And um, instead, where people have got the opportunity anyway, uh, people might be looking to buy uh, family homes or larger dwellings, but not always uh, brand new. Yeah, and I wonder if there's... um a bit of a, a understanding of what's a quality asset maybe. Maybe everything's been happening in China with Evergrande and, you know, some uh, country garden I think is another big one that's had some issues and maybe they've realised that maybe the, the off-the-plan high-density apartments aren't, isn't and maybe they've had it, seen what their friends and family have done in Australia and maybe they're thinking, actually, maybe I don't want to buy these new apartments. There's more money to be made and it's better, uh, you know, security of my money in land. And I do think that... the the government's going to look for foreign investment to drive our building cycle. You know, the reality is, uh, you know, a lot of mum and dad investors here don't really want to buy off the plan apartments for investments anymore. They've sort of, you know, the veil has been lifted, building issues, underperformance in capital growth, um, you know, supply issues, selling issues, et cetera. So they're going to need someone to basically fund these builds. And so I, I reckon these, uh, you know, uh, foreign surcharges for stamp duty could be removed. And they could go looking overseas for the money to basically do our next um, you know, round of building. What, what's your thoughts on that, Pete? Yes, I think so. I mean, as we've talked about previously on the podcast, most Aussies don't like to really buy those big tower block uh, apartments off the plan. And it was really the previous cycle, which was the biggest construction cycle we've ever seen in Australia, was largely driven by non-resident buyers buying off the plan. Um, I think possibly quite a few people got burned doing it that time around and maybe there's less uh, less sort of demand for it this time but yes governments can put incentives in place if they want to lure buyers back into that type of property and there's certainly uh, definitely an increase in the potential pathways uh, south china morning post reported chinese immigration into australia is about to top pre-pandemic levels uh, in part lured by the prospect of owning australian property but yes jawai's uh, md daniel ho uh, said that many Chinese live here already as permanent residents or have two passports, but they definitely this time around looking for larger apartments, townhouses, single family homes. They're less likely to purchase a one bedroom or small two bedroom inner city apartment this time. Uh, so, yes, I think that just goes back to what you said. Uh, people may be a little bit put off by the results last time where they paid top dollar for new apartments in some of those areas around Homebush and Western Sydney and uh, prices really didn't go anywhere for a decade and uh, maybe just looking at a slightly different option this time. So if the government's going to get construction happening, they might need to put some incentives in place and they almost certainly would need to remove the stamp duty surcharges, I think, if they really want to get that sector moving. Yeah, if you could cut stamp duty, make it much easier for foreign money to buy apartments here and that that if you can't get locals to do it, maybe that's our option is to, to get international money and... Um, Maybe that also is attached to migration, you know, if you buy a certain amount. I can see these sort of things happening that, you know, we've got a rental affordability crisis. The government can't afford to, to build all these apartments. Um, you know, consumers and mums and dads don't want to, you know, buy them as investments. Well, who's going to buy them, right? And a lot of first-time buyers don't want to buy them because they also, you know, realise that they're not the greatest investments. Um, and so I, I think that's uh, so a solution needs to be found. I think foreign money is going to be potentially one of them. So story number two, P, what should we... Uh, what should we talk about? Yeah, so actually, as you said there, I mean, the event we did this week was in Kensington, which is obviously a big university 
area and we had some of the people in the Q&A saying uh, we've got rental uh, leases expiring and the, the rent's going to go up 50% and what do we do next and um, yeah there's a there's a lot of um, pressure there and that, that is largely driven by the return of international students we had a, a kind of a vacuum or an air pocket there for a couple of years where they weren't around and suddenly they've come rushing back in record numbers and the, the rental market is absolutely crush loaded uh, that flows into I suppose our second story um, Aussie property prices returned to record highs reported in the Australian. So PropTrack have said that prices have fully recovered their downturn by September 2023, which is quite a bit different from what some people had forecast. Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, all back at record highs. Sydney, uh, 0.3% below record, so more or less back to record highs, driven by record population growth, uh, very few forced sellers, low stock on the market, rising rents and also soaring building costs and looking ahead uh, projecting steadier growth but growth nonetheless in 2024 and 2025 so chris this is something we've touched on a little bit before there's been some doom and gloom forecasts around the traps over the last two or three years i guess but uh, none of which have really come to pass and now we're back uh, to where we were yeah i think this is where the positive feedback loop will really start to kick in right so when people start noticing that prices are higher than they were two years ago, um, that real FOMO really will start to take off, right? Because they'll be like, well, I've really missed the boat here. If I don't get in now, it's going to be particularly before rate cuts, et cetera. Um, and then I think they're going to really quickly get factored into prices. I mean, you know, Chris Joy hasn't come out and sort of admitted that he's, his expectations of where the market was going were wrong. And um, even though interest rates went much further than he thought they would, um, but Jarden had a similar bet. They were thinking 15 to 25% falls, even as early as 2023, I believe. And, um, you know, the team there came out with an amazing report this week. I love when people uh, sort of admit that they didn't get it right, right, and then re-look at their decision and say, what did we get wrong? And Jarden did that with a report. Um, and, you know, what they probably uh, also highlighted in that report was that uh, intergenerational wealth, um, the amount of money transferring down the generations and the impact uh, that is given to support prices was completely um, underestimated. Uh, and this is something we've seen on the ground. We've just seen the deposits our uh, first-home buyers in particular are getting from parents and grandparents um, have been enormous. So not everyone's fortunate in this situation, but there's a lot of uh, wealth. You know, when you think about this, uh, the property markets worth $10 trillion, but there's $2.2 trillion of debt. So that's not including money in offset accounts as well. So, you know, you've got maybe $8 trillion of equity there that, um, you know, is getting passed down and getting multiplied because when they pass it down, you pass it down to younger generations who usually use that money and leverage it, um, whether they're leveraging it into upgrade or whether they're leveraging it into their first home. So um, this is, uh, you know, this is I think this is what's going to happen. Unfortunately, the positive news, we're seeing um, lots of, uh, articles coming out with suburb records, um, new suburb record set. Like if that's continually um, talked about, well, then people are saying, wow, it's the highest it's ever been. Maybe I need to get in before it goes even higher. Absolutely. There's no question that we've missed out on several properties that we appraised more or less at record high prices and we still missed out and with multiple buyers going in over the top of us. So certainly in parts of Brisbane, we've seen it and probably in other parts of the country too. On the interest rate point, yes, a bit of a mea culpa there because I certainly didn't think that the cash rate target would get to above 4% and yet here we are. So um, not everybody got that one right. In fact, not even the Reserve Bank themselves. Um, now, interesting comment here 
senior economist from PropTrack, Eleanor Cray, um, who we're hopefully going to get on the show in the coming weeks, actually, said the general lack of housing combined with higher migration is squeezing the market and outweighing the impact of interest rate rises. This is uh, as reported in The Australian. Uh, she said, looking ahead, interest rates have likely peaked and population growth is rebounding strongly. Together with a shortage of new home builds, prices are expected to rise. So we, as we head further into spring, more markets will reclaim 2022 falls and set new peaks. I think the interesting thing here, um, she's calling a peak or likely peak in interest rates. Now, since that article went to where we've had a whole week of uh, record high uh, bond yields in the US or the highest we've seen since 2007. So you could get 5% on a 10-year US government bond, which is something we haven't seen in over 15 years. Um, and I think, you know, generally, you would say if you can get 5% on your money, lock it up for a decade, completely risk-free, then that should push down asset prices. But of course, a lot can change and quite quickly. And in fact, overnight, as we record this, the oil price fell by uh, well over 5% and yields have come tumbling back down. So, yes, yeah, so whether or not we do get another rate hike um, later this year, early next year, that we don't really know. But usually what happens when you see a big spike in yields like this is they come back down again pretty quickly, just as fast as they went up. So, as you said, I think people are starting to anticipate um, potentially interest rates coming back down the other side sometime over the next year or two. So there's two lines of thought. One, uh, one group's basically thinking the rates are going to stay high for longer. Inflation's going to be ridiculously sticky. You know, um, the green energy transition, um, you know, oil, um, you know, just lots of different reasons why inflation's going to stay really high. And, you know, the wealth effects right now, you know, like house prices going back up should lead to more inflation, right? Um, and so there, there is that belief. And, I mean, in the markets the last week or so, there's that being, at least been perpetuated a little bit, you know. Um, you know, inflation figures may be jumping up, not as dropping as uh, as low as, uh, you know, people have thought that was as fast as it was dropping. So, but, you know, I think that story's flipped around so much in the last, you know, 12 or 18 months. And I would say there's generally a pretty good pace to its decline and it's looking like it's... Um, getting under control. I think the interesting thing um, I would say with prices at the moment is that if you go back two months ago, and we spoke about this on the podcast, there was this belief that listings were going through the roof. And, um, you know, I did a post saying, really? I just don't think that's true. I just think people are selling earlier this year and they usually would sell later in spring. Um, and, you know, when you look at CoreLogic sort of listing numbers, they're pretty much back in line with what they would be at this time of the year, if not under what they usually would be. So there was a lot of listings coming on, you know, in winter, and everyone thought that was a sign of distress. I just thought that was people selling a bit earlier in the in the um, spring season, um, and it's kind of proven to be the case. The listings are still very, very tight. People, are, there's more sales than there are listings, and so, um, you know, that's not considering it's already October. We've basically only got another four to six weeks before listings will really dry up, um, and if they stay really tight for the next four to six weeks. Um, and sentiment starts to pick up early into next year, um, yeah, that's not going to be a great news for people who are hoping prices fall. Yeah, there's a decent increase. SQM Research reported this week um, an increase in listings uh, through September. But even for Sydney, uh, listings are essentially only back to where they were a year ago or a little bit below. So, yes, more people are bringing properties to market. But actually, overall, stuff has been absorbed pretty well so far through this cycle. But um Yes, I mean, we're already into October. Before you know it, we'll be on 
the wind down to Christmas, it tends to happen pretty early in Australia. As you know, people like to start clocking off and thinking about their summer break. So uh, there's not too long to go um, in this calendar year before uh, the listings start falling away again. Um, but at least we're starting to see a little bit more stock come on. It's a, it's a good point, Chris, and it flows into our third story that for every uh, buyer, there there has to be a seller, I guess. And, um, you know, we often uh, focus on what buyers are doing, but um, yeah, there's there's the sales trends to look at as well. Um, AFR, uh, two articles from Larry Schlesinger on uh, farmland returns. Farmland returns dropped to an eight-year low on El Nino. So um, I guess um, there's a cyclical element to that industry. And it sounds like um, with weaker commodity prices and the El Nino weather cycle, a number of foreign sellers have been locking in gains at sky-high prices, which has just pushed down uh, farmland prices a little bit. Uh, so total annual returns from prime farmland, uh, despite record high yields in recent years or record agricultural yields, um, total annual returns fell to the lowest level in eight years. Uh, permanent returns down 6.6%. Um, and it looks like if you look at the uh, Ray White analysis of uh, offshore investors, well, it looks like um, only Canada saw an increase in investment and lots of other sort of uh, offshore investors have been offloading real estate and also Gina Reinhardt and a Chinese partner uh, selling off vast chunks of their uh, stations, um, hundreds of thousands of hectares being offloaded, um, Queensland, Northern Territory. Um, So, yeah, there's been a a big run, obviously, on land prices and we've had some very high yields uh, from crops in recent years. But it looks like uh, some people are locking in gains. And I suppose that's what you often see in real estate cycles. Prices go up. People like to lock in their gains and then prices ease off again. Yeah, I think the reason why this is interesting is that a lot of people think about property and they just think houses and they don't really think about apartments and townhouses and they don't think about uh, this, you know, the super high net worth, you know, states. They don't think about, um, you know, bigger apartments versus small apartments. So let alone in residential, there's so many different types of assets, um, inner city, outer city, rural you know, coastline, beachfront, these are all different types of, um, you know, property, even, you know, smaller houses versus bigger houses, um, busy roads versus quiet streets. So I think when you think about residential, there's so many things you kind of want to think about. The commercial is a whole other level, right? Um, and so when we're talking about um, people can invest in farmland to offices, to industrial, to, um, you know, and the list sort of basically goes on, right? And I think there's so many elements of that as well. You know, there's the small offices versus the big, high rises in the city there's you know um, retail shop fronts versus you know westfield etc and so i think you know there's a lot of money going around in the commercial space and, and usually most people don't get exposure to this just because of the purchase prices to enter into these assets i mean the farmland you know the quality farmland properties must be hundreds of millions probably of dollars um and but you know there's a lot of money that's where a lot of the big end play um but you know you can only play there if you've got a lot of money right pete Yes, there's different things here, aren't there? So, at full disclosure, I do own farmland in the UK, uh, partly because my wife's from a farming family. But yes, there's different ways that people go about investing in this. In the UK, it's popular because it's inheritance tax-free. If you actually run genuinely run agricultural land, um, so cropland, for example, or running a farm. In Australia, I think um, for small-time investors, it's sometimes popular. People like to own a hobby farm or if they have a farm that's in close proximity to places like Byron Bay or those really popular resorts, then they can also run Airbnb properties on the same same, uh, property. 
and therefore, you know, you can increase the yields that way. So, yeah, so despite the decline in agricultural output, it's still the third highest on record at 80 billion. Um, but, yeah, so that, I think um, sometimes if you get farmland that's in proximity uh, to a town, then there's potential that sometime in the future it might be developed. But, um, yeah, it's a bit of a niche asset class. I think uh, we've talked uh, previously about the challenges in some of the other commercial asset classes. Uh, retail is going through a change, I guess, over recent years, you know, much more online shopping. Uh, office space, as we know, has been significantly disrupted by covid and more people working from home at least a couple of days a week and that's put downward pressure on office rents probably the best performing um commercial sector of late has been the industrial uh, yeah. property because we've got just you know the economy was booming got booming population um you know well located industrial properties and sheds and storage and things like that and medical centers there's a lot of demand We've got, we've got a growing and aging population. So, um, yes, it's a very broad asset class. Uh, farmland has taken a bit of a knock, um, but that's coming off very high levels. Um, office space, yeah, rents are down 10 to 15%, probably still falling in a lot of cases and probably some more downside risk, I guess, for office prices and valuations. Uh, but some other parts of the commercial market doing quite well. So, yes, it's definitely, if you're going to go down that route, you really need to understand what you're buying and why and how it fits into your overall portfolio. Yeah, and I think that's um, probably a good wrap to our third story. We're a bit ahead of time here at this, Pete. So I'd love to just ask you a bit of a question, to be honest. Mm. And um, you mentioned there you've got a lot of people missing out, and you know that means that the market's really heating up. And try to just a quick look at SQM, and Brisbane's listings are way down on, mm. you know, pre-COVID, right? Like it's, you know, the amount of people selling is way down. So, you know, how, are you, how do you approach that, right? So you've got a brief... The market's moving faster than what you can value the property, right? Um, what's your, how, do you, how do you handle that for your clients? Yeah, to be fair, I think it's a bit too speed. I think it's, uh, you know, if you've got properties that are in good locations, they're family appropriate and um, high quality uh, stock, then yes, we turn up to the open home and all the other buyer's agents are there as well. And that's really challenging. There's only so much magic that a buyer's agent can work. Um, I think a lot of this is in research and preparation. There's only sometimes so much you can do. Um, I think you're right. If you went back to 2015, 16, 17, there was so much new construction happening. And even though um, a lot of that new stock doesn't hit realestate.com necessarily, um, but it does have a knock-on impact. You know, People decide to buy a new property to move into and then they sell their existing one. And stock levels were pretty easy for a few years there. You know, There's plenty to go around and there wasn't much pressure uh, lots of auctions passing in and loads of scope for negotiation. Well, that that's completely shifted around now. They've got an undersupply of housing, um, especially in Greater Brisbane, but actually in other parts of the southeast Queensland as well. Um, so, yes, look, you need to know exactly what your budget is. You need to know what your brief is. And, yeah, there's no sort of magic bullet. The main thing you can really do is um, speak to the real estate agents in the area you're hoping to buy in to try and get first look at a property or sometimes even buy pre-market or off market but um yes if you get involved in an auction or a, a bidding war where you get 17 offers like we did this week um yes the odds of you being the winner and the winner at a decent price is very slim really so um yes that's definitely what we've experienced i hadn't seen the sqm figures but i'm not surprised to hear what you say because uh, it definitely feels that way uh population growth running at around two and a half percent for queensland in some parts of 
uh, the state it's probably well over three percent it's absolutely booming and we're just not building enough at the moment and what's your general vibe with brisbane and the olympics like what's your take on a lot of people think that you know i should buy in brisbane because of the olympics but what's your belief around all that yeah, so I don't think it's a reason in itself. I think, um, you know, people have often uh, brought up research to show, yes, in some of the London boroughs, prices did really well with the London Olympics. And you can go back to the Sydney Olympics and say something similar. But it's really part of a broader story. Yes, uh, it does bring a lot of capex and investment uh, to the city and, in fact, across the region, really. Um, but it's only one part of the story. I think Brisbane's competitive advantage over the past decade there's been it's uh, you know smaller there's more space it's a bit cheaper than sydney and melbourne um so there's plenty of businesses now that can uh, place themselves in brisbane with a decent amount of talent and we're starting to see that reflected in the demand for housing um so yeah so a fair number of people at the sydney events actually are brisbane based but previously lived in sydney and moved up well that's a very very common story in australia uh, new migrants tend to go to sydney and melbourne but internally uh, people move to Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, Gold Coast, and that, that strip really from Noosa down to the Tweed and uh, northern New South Wales. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah there's a lot of uh, pressure on that strip of the country. And, um, yes, the investment, uh, the Olympics will bring a lot of investment, certainly in terms of infrastructure and new stadia and so on. But that's, that's really an ongoing uh, thing for Brisbane. There's the uh, new rail projects going in, uh, uh, stadiums getting upgraded so it's not uh, just a, a one-off thing and also um, down at Queen Street there you know great big wharf development going in multi-billion dollar project so there's lots happening and it's all pretty good and um, is there much the government's doing to you know because what would really drive Brisbane prices in my belief is when you know uh, talent or business owners think you know what my head office or our current head office in Sydney Melbourne it's much more affordable for our staff to do this in Brisbane um why don't we do, you know, move to Brisbane, right? Why don't we open our business up in Brisbane and that be our head office where there's enough talent in Brisbane to do that rather than start the business in Sydney and Melbourne where they think there's more talent. So what's the state government doing to encourage businesses to to open up there and, you know, drag them away from other CBDs? Oh, there's plenty of it. If you look at insurance, financial services, mining, you know, there's lots of big companies you'd recognise on the buildings, a lot of very familiar names there. Um, but um, I think the real game changer over recent years has been uh, some of the uh, the bigger players saying to people, well, look, you can base yourself in our Brisbane office. You don't have to be in Sydney uh, five days a week. And a lot of people have taken advantage of that. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know that the state government has specifically put measures in place to make that more accessible. I know they've they announced the new investment in um, internet speeds yesterday, but I'll believe it when I see it. Um, we, we always seem to lag behind in Australia. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, just generally, um, Queensland has had a had a pretty good run, and uh, I guess unlike uh, some of the other states, we've got uh, big revenues from resources, so we're not drowning in debt to the same extent uh, that certain other states have been. Uh, so uh, hopefully, they can make investment a more attractive proposition for businesses um, and for individuals. Um, so yeah, I think sometimes the endless changes in tax settings can put people off a little bit certainly seeing that in victoria recently and queensland's had a fair few goes at it so um yeah stable uh, structure and uh, certainty of the outlook would definitely help in that regard yeah and i think um i mean obviously the rents or the yields in brisbane um you know are quite are much higher than other cities like in particular over melbourne when you're buying investments do you think it's sustainable that rents are 
going to hold where they are if not go up because there's still very low vacancies and there's still a you know a lot of interstate migration. I think for the next three years at least because there just isn't um, the uh, the building happening. So if you look at building approvals uh, a decade ago, we saw this enormous surge, you know, all around those uh, suburbs like Newstead. You know, there was just massive uh, sort of swathes of land that weren't previously. Uh, residential zoned and then suddenly there was units going up all over the place inner city fortitude valley uh, west end became a highly residential suburb well we're not just not seeing that at the moment the building approvals are very low and that's largely because we don't have the foreign money to get those projects out of the ground um so i think if they're serious about supplying the market then they would need to look at taking that stamp duty surcharge off for foreign buyers but at the moment it hasn't happened and usually you find with medium density projects, it's really a two to three year project to get them actually brought to market. So even if we saw a big uplift in approvals today, um, the rental crisis and the shortage of housing isn't going to be solved until 2026 at the earliest. Um, so, yes, I think uh, a lot of pressure on the rental market. And that's just going to continue for the next few years, I think. Yeah. And I think, you're, Pete, you've been buying a bit in uh, Newcastle way as well, right? The um... You've got Reese working down in Newcastle for you? Yeah, shout out to Reese. He's our buyer's agent, uh, Newcastle, Central Coast. He does a little bit on the northern beaches of Sydney as well, but that's a really tough market to buy in, uh, talking of low stock levels. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's definitely a challenge. But yeah, I mean, um, look, uh, Newcastle, uh, we did a roadshow there only a couple of weeks ago. Fabulous city these days. It's, uh, it was known for being the coal capital, but it's so much more than that now with the universities, the big accounting firms and other businesses. The place is absolutely booming. I think the only real downside with you know good climate and beaches, I think the traffic could use a bit of a, a helping hand. It can get a bit snarled up down there, but great value from 700k upwards. You can get houses really well located. So it's popular with investors definitely popular with people moving out of sydney uh, so many people they like mentioned uh, glenn james based in that part of the world but so many people moving out of sydney as well because uh, affordability challenges is pushing people into wollongong newcastle central coast those kind of areas uh, yeah the place is absolutely booming and uh, yeah we're getting some really good investments and uh, people moving up there as well yeah absolutely i grew up in newcastle so not well and um i didn't think i'd ever move back to newcastle i don't think i will but uh, you know, I do go up there a lot more to see my mum and um, it's hard whenever you get close to Meriwether Beach, you still start thinking maybe I could make it happen. <laughs> and um, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people who grew up in Newcastle are moving back, you know, they're getting to that family stage, you know, they want to be around their parents and, you know, that's much more affordable and, you know, much more easier life for, as a family. You can get a park at the beach and, uh, and you can still get your city income if you want. You know, a lot of jobs will give people that flexibility. So, um, yeah, there's lots to love about that. I remember Newcastle going market. there in the 90s, Chris, and the, the reputation Newcastle has, was, you know, the pool balls would stop rolling if you weren't a local and you went into the pubs. But uh, we did the event of the ship and anchor down there. Fabulous city these days. Uh, you know, no sense of it being, um, you know, second fiddle to Sydney. The place is absolutely rocketing ahead and it's only getting more and more popular now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Pete, what's on for this week? Just time at the beach in Cairns and... Um... Well, yes, I've got a week's holiday. So, uh, yeah, it's not all work, work, work. It's uh, just up in uh, Kansas, uh, taking the kids to the reef. Never been before. Um, they haven't. And uh, I realized my daughter's nearly nine years old and she said she'd never been to Cairns. So I thought we'd have to uh, show her the sights. So it should be pretty good. Uh, nice 30 degree climate up here. Um, so, yes, we'll um, look forward to checking in with you uh, next week, Chris. And um, let's see what the week brings. Awesome. Send your questions through and um, yeah, we look forward to chatting to you all next week. Happy Sunday. Cheers, Chris.
Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.